All right, you ready? I'm ready. Let's do this. Welcome to The Loyalist Connections. Established 1783. So you had a pretty busy weekend. Man, you wouldn't believe it. First time as an adult driving to Yarmouth with the family. How was the drive? It was long and noisy, and I'm happy it's done. <laughs> I was happy to get to the destination. I could do that drive in my sleep, man. Oh, my goodness. I almost fell asleep. <laughs> it's so funny because you can go, you know, the North Shore, the South Shore, right? I always find it a different experience. So, you know, going from the North Shore takes a little bit longer. South Shore is always quick and dirty, as I say, right? Mm -hmm. It takes me three hours, like, in my sleep, literally, right? So I've done that route hundreds of times, man. So glad you got a chance to go down there, experience Yarmouth. Absolutely. But you also had the opportunity to go to Greenville as well, too. I did. You know, it was, like I said, first trip for myself as an adult. The purpose was to see the province, and we got an opportunity to see half the province. Right. Uh, heading down that way to Yarmouth. Took my grandmother. So my grandmother wanted to go for a trip. And she promised me the best fish and chips that I'd ever taste. And you took the South Shore, right? Took the South Shore. So North Shore going down, South Shore going home. And so on that way, you know, about an hour outside of Yarmouth is the first episode that we're going to do today and kind of kick off this historical journey for us. Right. The Black Loyalists arrival in That's Nova right. Scotia. And they settled. 1783. What a critical moment in the Black Nova Scotian history. Well, Canadian history. Canadian history. Right. We can't forget that. Cannot. And so about an hour away from Yarmouth, like I said, you ran into Birchtown and then you would have passed Shelburne on that exit as well, too. Absolutely. And just for everybody to understand, Birchtown is situated on Birchtown Bay on the western shore of Shelburne Harbor. Uh -huh. So, as I mentioned, it's about two hours from Halifax and one hour from Yarmouth. And if you know anybody, any Nova Scotians, you know they always talk about in terms of where they live and how far places in proximity in that sense. So, you want to know one interesting thing that I learned? as we're going through this process is the fact that, you know, that harbor is the third largest natural harbor in the world. You stole my fact, but it's that's true. <laughs> third largest. When you actually go to Birchtown and you go to the Black Loyalist Heritage Center Museum and you actually see that port where they came in, it's amazing. That harbor is huge. So... As you said, 1783 is, 1783. A, is essentially when Birchtown and Shelburne was settled. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this question. Why was it settled? What happened exactly? Well, that was the uh, end of American Revolutionary War. Blacks that committed themselves to the British for purpose of freedom and prosperity and the potential to live and walk the earth as humans associated with them. and. Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. And what I find funny is, why did the British do that? Well, they weren't doing too good in the war. They were struggling. They were struggling. They were like, well, we have to make some changes here. Mm -hmm. And what did they do? They offered slaves the opportunity to get some promised freedom, mm -hmm. land as well. So what happened? They lost the war and they shipped them out. They said, we're not staying here. We're not going back into slavery. 
That's right. So roughly 3,000 of these free blacks arrived in Nova Scotia. Uh So I think a lot of people will understand the reference to Book of Negroes at that point. And you've seen that kind of commercialized in that sense, where that's the book of documented experience of these 3,000 free blacks that arrived as part of the American Revolutionary War. Uh So they enlisted the ex-slaves to help their manpower, their efforts. From what I understand, they trained them pretty well. They were resourceful. And that's when we start talking about groups like the Black Pioneers, Uh right? And so the Black Pioneers were a very interesting group. They couldn't actually serve in combat. They were doing a lot of construction, I guess, and civil engineering in that sense. But they were a very resourceful bunch as well, too. So a lot of those Black Pioneers ended up, guess what? Where did they establish themselves? In Birchtown. Birchtown. Right. Did you realize, though, like, they had a huge role in the development and the settlement of Shelburne? They did, which was really interesting. I never thought of that in that sense. And actually, Shelburne came first before Birchtown. Mm -hmm. What was really interesting was it was settled by Stephen Bluck, and he was a black loyalist commander who was part of those black pioneers. Now, what was interesting was that he helped establish Shelburne itself. Absolutely. I think he worked with one of the chief surveyors. That's right. To identify this land, not only in Shelburne, but for the black loyalists in Birchtown. That's right. Now, what I found interesting as well, too, is that Birchtown was named after British General Sam Birch. Mm -hmm. When these slaves arrived to Nova Scotia or Shelburne County, they were granted 40 acres of land. Up to. Up to. Not all received 40, up to 40. Up to 40. But Mr. Bluck, (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Bluck, I think he received like well over 100. Yeah. You know what I found interesting? They started talking about the the farming Mm -hmm. land there. And they said, you know, it was an ideal situation for farming your own agriculture Mm -hmm. and things of that nature. But for some reason, he made it work. He had a vast garden. That's right. And so when you start looking at this, and I think the Black Pioneers mm-hmm. is something that we're probably going to explore a little bit later as well, too, because this group sounds very resourceful, right? Oh, absolutely. Well, another thing, too, is just given his stature, like Stephen Bluck, commander, commissioned to be like a lieutenant, really set himself apart as a leader, built great relationships with the white loyalists put himself in a position where he could be relied on and used as a source for labor. He was the person you went to if you wanted to get something done. Yeah, like a jack-of-all-trades, so to speak, right? It's interesting that given everything that happened in the war, like he rose to the top, right, and was able to leverage those relationships to really make himself that person that we just described. They said he was like the African Nova Scotian true founder in that sense, right? So, you know, I think he's done, he did a lot for the initial wave of black loyalists that arrived here to kind of pave the way for a lot of them, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Remember, there was 3,000 free blacks that arrived in Nova Scotia. Now, not all of them stayed in Birchtown, Shelburne. No. Some of them went to places like... Preston. Some of them went to St. John, New Brunswick. Some of them went to Annapolis. Um, There's probably a few other places that I'm missing, but these individuals left. But roughly 1,500 of these individuals stayed in Birchtown. Absolutely. Think about that for a second. Just stop. It's pretty crazy. It's beyond crazy. 
And this is where it started. And just to give you the sense of the size, is the, and don't fact check me on this. We'll figure this out. This is right around when we have our special guest in the fourth largest city in North America at that time. That's, that says a lot. All of a sudden, all of these free blacks come to your community, right? Mm-hmm. I think there might have been a little bit of resentment as well, too, within the local Shelburne community, which is the reason why you probably would have seen them pushed out to go somewhere else, right? Well, absolutely. I mean, let's not forget that slavery existed in Nova Scotia around that time, right? And like history tells us that the blacks weren't offered anything that would have helped them prosper, like i.e. land that they could farm. So that's right? a, it's a really interesting point because what happened, from my understanding, is that once you lose access to stuff like land, then you need to become resourceful. And then what's the next thing that you do? You lend yourself out. So Absolutely. a lot of these free blacks... Not everybody received the amount they were uh, promised. That's right. So that journey was filled with broken promises. Right. So when I think of like, you know, the day-to-day life of individuals there. We talked about farming, fishing, f- forestry. Looking at the, the black loyalists, we come across a black loyalist named David George. We need to look at the church membership because not only did he have black loyalists, he had white loyalists as well. And I think right. the situation that erupted or that later turned into the, the race riot could have been uh, more complex because what I understand is that his preaching style attracted lots and he was a popular guy. Mic drop. From my understanding, they gave David George kind of like an ultimatum. They said, hey, listen, you can stop practicing in Shelburne. David was like, nah, no, I, I really like this, so I'm going to keep doing it. As a result, guess what? Some violence occurred. Violence ensued. <laughs> All because of the church? That's what it sounds like. Oh, interesting. Interesting. So if you look at David George himself, he continued to preach. Violence ensued. Mm-hmm. Lasted how long? Well, they set up to a month, roughly. Right, and from my understanding, they actually went and physically went to David George's his homestead, mm-hmm. so to speak. But I think he fled to Perchtown to, to try to uh, try to stave them off, right? And so I think this is a reminder of, in terms of some of the racial discrimination and uh-huh. the displacement, these race riots that came from this perfect storm of religion and economic situations. A lot of people ended up leaving that area and started intermigrating to other parts of the province as a result as well, too, Mm -hmm. in search of free land, staying away from violence. Well, the interesting thing is that this is all new to them. Arrived 1783, 1784, trying to find their way led to what we know as a race riot, which to me is... Shocking, but I'm not surprised because of how segregation works, right? How oppression works, how systemic racism works. And if we look at the history of race riots, we know that there's been other race riots 
in our province, modern day race riots too, which we'll go into greater detail hopefully at some point. Mm-hmm. So let's just fast forward right now and let's talk about the community now, so to speak. And what I find really interesting is that we look at Birchtown, Shelburne area. And if I was to ask you, how many people do you think is living in that area now? What would your guess be? Let's remember, I drove through there this weekend and I didn't see many people looking like me. <laughs> is that because you're good looking or is it just no, that, yeah, no right? Yeah. Oh, you mean like you. I, I get it now. <laughs> so if you're the population now is about 225 African Nova Scotians living in Birchtown in Shelburne County. Today we talked a lot about Birchtown and Shelburne. We looked at the community, people, and issues, but I'm thinking we're only scratching the surface. I think there's so much more to discover about this area during this period. You're right, Larice. So that's why we're going to ask our special guest, Graham Nickerson, to tell us more. You know, I want to introduce to you Graham Nickerson. Based in Tamworth, New Brunswick, Graham is a proud black activist and historian. He's a board member with the Black Loyalist Heritage Center, the New Brunswick Black History Society, and is currently working on his master's in history at the University of New Brunswick. In his spare time, Graham is also a black loyalist reenactor, educating the public on historical black events and places throughout Atlantic Canada. Welcome, Graham. Hi, guys. We're so pleased to have you here today. Glad to be here. So, Graham, we are talking about, and I guess the, the title of this podcast is Loyalist Connections. Can you tell us how you're connected to Birchtown, Shelburne? Yeah, I'm the descendant of two, at least two black loyalists who are in the Book of Negroes. So Henry Gwynn and Titus Milner. And so both of those guys ended up in Shelburne in 1783. And so through them, I'm tied into a network of black families and so my grandfather was, um, or my great grandfather on my, um, so my father's side, which is a black side of my family. Um, he was a number of, uh, a member of the number two construction battalion and his name was William Daring. So that's a topic that ties me into not only Shelburne blacks, but blacks from all over the region. Mm-hmm. And then my grandfather was Merle Bruce, who was a pretty well-known tap dancer in the in the early 20th century he toured around with hank snow for example uh was on don messer's jubilee and wolf carter so his son my father sylvester bruce was one of probably shelburne county's best athletes one of the the things that we talked about is like the black loyalists how they arrived in shelburne and how they were treated by the whites prior to their arrival in shelburne what do you know about that history it's a good question and it's a complicated one because mm-hmm. when we say the black loyalists, mm-hmm. right, there is really no the black loyalists. You're talking about from Maine all the way down to Florida, all of the black people who join the British. And so to sort of say like they're all one type of people is it's just culturally they're not, society wise they're not, religiously they're not. 
linguistically they're not. Mm-hmm. So in different places and different times, things happen differently. Mm-hmm. I mean, generally the blacks are trying to take advantage of whatever avenue is open to them for freedom. Right. If that's joining the British, mm-hmm. otherwise if it's joining the Continentals or the Patriots, mm-hmm. the, that's where they went. Um, basically being abused by both sides of the conflict and mm-hmm. and attempting to make the most of a pretty miserable situation. So when we think of the black lawyers and we try and circle around Shelburne, most of the early arrivals, they're coming from New York and they're either Virginia early people who joined like Lord Dunmore and mm-hmm. the Ethiopian mm-hmm. regiment yep, or black pioneers or or there are people who went to New York via the Navy or picked up by the Army. So there's a fair number of them that are doing fairly well. Mm-hmm. And what then, do you mean? Like they were doing fairly well prior to their arrival? Prior to their arrival. And even when they show up, their look into the future was quite promising. See, that's the issue with when you look at the Black Loyalists now, you know the story and you just project back, oh, well, they must have been powerless and Mm -hmm. mishandled the entire way back through the time. That's not the case. Mm -hmm. We had a lot of power and there are lots of people who were leaders and accomplished great things. Yep. There are some really, really interesting stories, and I'm not sure if we're going to get into them now or if you want to pick this up at some other time, but there are guys like Colonel Ty, who's the leader of the Black Brigade who raids through New Jersey and is by many historians one of the most effective military leaders on the British side for the war. And he's Stephen Bluke's predecessor. So when he gets Colonel Ty gets huh. killed and Stephen Bluke comes in and starts to lead the Black Brigade and the Black Pioneers. But he's not nearly as gifted a military leader as as Colonel Ty. Stephen Bluke's name came up a fair amount. He had a pretty interesting he, it, and honestly, he's from Barbados, so he may have had his own. Oh, that's right. Yeah, his so own way of else. saying it. Yeah. So Stephen Bluke was from the Barbados. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Hmm. So more of that. Plenty more of those connections out there. Yeah, we're talking exactly. loyalist connections. There, it's crazy. The, yeah, the with the web. Caribbean islands. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, Graham, uh, one question I had was specifically around the three thousand free blacks that arrived here. How many were indentured servants? soldiers. We know they worked in construction. We know they were engineers um, and that they were black pioneers. Can you give a breakdown specifically of what that would have looked like when they arrived? Yeah. So again, it's sort of cloudy depending on what sources you look at and when you tally up your own numbers and you'll come up with different numbers. So (laughs) the 3,000, they're about a I think a thousand fifteen hundred who are who are like free, right? And then the others are in this sort of continuum of indenturedness or full out enslavement. So there are, I think, like I said, I think it's around three thousand people in the book of Negroes who are um, in either free mm-hmm. or in some other arrangement of of limited or full out bondage. But then there are like another thousand or so, uh, 1500 um, servants, I believe that are, um, that, are, that show up in other documents that aren't necessarily in the book of Negroes. Uh, 
Sean mentioned, you know, the black pioneers, uh, the black pioneers, I think they were like the military, like military so black, group, they were fighters, so almost, this were is, they, You're getting a, a sense of this black loyalist history. Again, this is, it's, this is somewhat of a foggy area. There is the black pioneers that were raised at the very beginning mm-hmm. of the conflict from North Carolina. And that's where Thomas Peters and uh, I think Murphy Steele, there's a couple of black loyalists who, mm-hmm. who are pr- pretty prominent later on who are, are signed up as black pioneers. And so they're mm-hmm. mainly non-combatants, but then there are other groups, pioneer groups. So there's always sort of this idea of like the black pioneers, but the black pioneers is the one that that's has Thomas Peters in it. And there's, they're broken up and spread out like right. they're, they are a company, but they're spread out over the other British companies or regiments. And they're, they're one or two of them per, per uh, company who, who um, basically are responsible for combat en- engineering. But then there are sort of these ad hoc pioneer right. companies that are raised whenever the British need black labor. Right. So there's another black, uh, there's an, another Carolina pioneer group that gets raised during the British uh, invasion of the South. And then there are, there's evidence of other ad hoc sort of, we need 500 black people to go and build that, build fortifications and so they'll raise an, an ad hoc pioneer company and so that's why you end up with so if you just look at po- the word pioneers and think oh those are our black pioneers well they are black pioneers but they may yeah. not be the black pioneers yeah. right right so like they were comprised of like skilled individuals like whether it be combat whether it be construction whether it be you know combat engineering like these well they were, people were they skilled were, in one I capacity mean, it's still, or another skilled labor is still skilled labor like you can yes right that yeah they just weren't mm-hmm. getting paid, for, getting it. paid and, for and it's it. like yeah. not everybody can stand <laughs> out in the summertime <laughs> in georgia and dig <laughs> a big huge trench and build a fort some yeah. of them would have been oh, translators true. with First no. Nations. Some of yeah, them would have, I couldn't. would have been ferrymen. Um, every now okay. and then they probably would have had to grab a musket and, and fire a few salvos at, at Americans or whoever. But most of the time, most of the time in general mm-hmm, for right. blacks, they, the white society there did not want to see blacks walking around with firearms and um, it gave everybody the wrong impression. Uh-huh. And um, yeah, yeah, well, that's, and it made blacks fear. insubordinate. So, um, yes, yep, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the American Revolution uh-huh. has been termed by s- several historians as being like the largest um, slave, up, most successful slave uprising in, in the Americas. So, um, so that's, it's the black, so the black pioneers are generally non-combatants, but they play, they fill a lot of different roles and, and um, they're fairly significant in that they're one of the first to, to be raised by the British. And then, so wherever they go, enslaved black people see these black people in uniform and, uh-huh. and behaving as if they're free and go, oh, uh-huh. okay, what the British are offering us, it must be true. Is, yeah, there yeah. must be something there. Yeah. 
so one thing talking about black loyalists and the reason I've had this conversation, like the day to day lives, employment opportunities, things of that nature. I have a general sense, but can you elaborate a little bit more on what the day to day life for some of the black loyalists would look like? Okay. So here's some really, really deep stuff about our people, right? Is that when we first get introduced to our blackness, it's through the middle passage. And by that Mm -hmm. time, we're already victims. Right. Along the coast of Africa, it was African sailors, right, who guided Europeans through the surf zone because we were better small boat. Yeah. Small boatmen. Most Europeans couldn't swim. Africans could. Caribbean's full of of people who came as Creole sailors and, and filled a niche of small boatmen, coastal tavern keepers, dock workers, those sorts of things. So the the Caribbean and the Southern U S and New York city, they're full of these people who are capable, skilled maritime labor. And that's what it was like in Nova Scotia. So again, when we look today and we're like, well, why is captain Highliner white? Well, it's because it, during the mid 19th century, when things were shifting from wind and sail, blacks were excluded from that transition. Blacks weren't allowed to go to trade schools. Um, they were right. essentially, if they're on a boat, they were probably like the lowest deck crew or were stewards or cooks or whatever. It sounds like they systematically erased the skill <laughs> or eliminated the skill from being passed on, right? Like it's crazy. It's yeah, like they systematically a- did it and then systematically erased it. And Holy. so, so and, and why? Because this is Canada. We didn't do that kind of thing, but mm-hmm. we did. We did. It's so I'm sorry. I shouldn't laugh, but uh, no, but yeah, it's crazy. We, yeah, I have to because I'm like, well, let's let's fast forward to present day, like. I laugh all the time about it because it's just so blatant. Yeah, it's so blatant. Yeah, it's like it just it it you look and it's like oh well these people are all fishermen they're all black boat builders like once you start to look and you're like mm-hmm. how do I not know this like why yeah. don't I know that my people were boat builders and, mm-hmm. and sailors and mm-hmm. yeah so we have a very close tie to the maritime tradition. And so this is sort of where we tackle this this victim narrative, right? People look mm-hmm. at Birchtown and they go, oh, the blacks were stuck out in Birchtown. Well, when Stephen Bluke went to Birchtown, he was like, I like it here. He likely was looking out, turning around, not looking at the land because the land's not farmland. Yeah, right? uh-huh. it's not. But he's, yeah. he's looking out at the water and going, I can see right out the harbor from here. So I can get in a, uh, we have a, we can boat ourselves over. So we're close he was a surveyor, he was wharf. a surveyor and he surveyed this land and said, basically, we can move product through here, whatever it needs to be, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I'm just, I'm going to be honest. That's what yeah. he said. He just looked, he, it's like, oh, wait, I can move whatever I want through here. Exactly. I can do, I can wow. be, so I'm close enough by boat. I can go over to Shelburne and I can work on the docks. I can be a sailor. I can do all of these things that I used to do in the U S and I'm far enough away from Shelburne. I'm not going to have a bunch of white people up in my business every day, all the time. I'm far enough away. There's a river between, there's a couple of rivers between me and Shelburne and we can, we've got enough soldiers here that we're safe. We're safe from mobs and coercion and 
we're close enough yet far enough away. And if you've been to Birchtown, you can see that harbor. Like it's just yes. open. It, it's amazing, right? It, it and, you is. know, you you look and you see it, and then you're like, all the potential there. And this is what this guy said. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to capitalize off this. So again, yeah. it, it goes back to the root of what you know you said about you know history looking back at this and placing a victim or victimizing the the, the the blacks that arrived yeah yeah so that's and this is the essence of being a black loyalist it's like you're given this line of like you're always the victims poor poor you guys and we, who knows what happened to you if the white people weren't around to take care of you but mm-hmm. it's like no when you actually look, if you look at the sources, you look at Benjamin Marston has in his diary, he's the head surveyor in Shelburne. He takes Stephen Bluke out to Birchtown. Stephen Bluke looks around and says, I like it here. I like this place. Now, we don't know why he likes it, but I, right. you've stood there. I've stood there. You look, yeah. turn around, you look out at the harbor and you're like, oh, and if I say, oh, black loyalists, there's a, a huge number of those people were, were mariners, small boatmen and worked on the docks, you're going to go, Oh, yeah, that makes sense. So, uh, you know what? We, we've talked about a lot of influential people. You hit on one of them right there, Stephen Bluke. What is Stephen's story? Colonel Ty gets shot in the hand and dies of lockjaw. And then Stephen Bluke takes over. And so he's leading. He's a commander of the Black Pioneers, but he's also leading the Black Brigade. Mm-hmm. But uh, whatever reason, I mean, you, it doesn't seem to have been permanent. And so the Black pioneers end up in the valley and then new new brunswick and the black brigade ends up in shelburne and black brigade usually doesn't get much credit actually i mean it's almost like somebody erased them from the historical narrative so anyway Stephen ends up in he comes he's i think he's on the may fleet in 1783 he ends up in birchtown so he's there and he's he has he does have a voice. I mean, he, he had connections to the upper echelons of, of white loyalist society, because if you wanted to get something built, you're going to go see Stephen Bluke and, and get his pioneers to, to build your stuff. Cause they had experience doing this. Yeah. And so he ends up being the de facto mayor of Birchtown really. And early on, it is the military guys who are higher prominence in mm-hmm. the settlement, right? He can read and write. And he's, he's fairly well to do. He's a mulatto as well. So he's, you know, he has, uh-huh. he has that exposure to, to white people, right. That a lot of blacks wouldn't have had. So he'd have been relatively accustomed and, and been able to pass in white society as Easy. someone you could talk to. Right. Right. So Stephen Bluke capitalized on that. He was a teacher. He ran the town, but he was probably a pain to some of the the white loyalists who didn't want any strength and leadership in the black community. Right. So he was, I'm not sure who leveled the accusations against him, but he was accused of embezzlement and subsequently disappeared with his clothes. That was one of our questions. Yeah. yeah. We're yeah. like, what happened to this guy? Like all of a sudden, like there's just, <laughs> there's Steven. Yeah, and like, then there's you, no you Steven. It's like, <laughs> he just <laughs> kind of vanished. Yeah. Where, where'd you go? Here's his bloody clothes. It must have been a wild animal attack. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> that's, that's it. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and so 
then come to find out when they go into through his house and pilfer his belongings or whatever they're doing, they find the money that he was accused of embezzlement. And this is the thing with him. It's like, it was a common thing within the early loyalist arrivals to accuse other people of being corrupt. And so that was how you, it's like, that guy's got all the power. I want that power. I'm going to accuse him of being corrupt. And then I'm going to approach somebody in London who has power, my ally in London and, Looking at this, it's really how white loyalist descendants want to craft the the loyalist legacy. They don't want right. to remember it as being a dysfunctional uh, dystopia in 1783, 1784. They want it to be like, oh, look at our ancestors. We're all glamorous and, and well off. And, and that's just not the case. It was chaos here. So let's uh, fast forward a little bit here and, and talk about this race riot. 1784, there was a name that kept popping up, which was David George. Mm -hmm. And we know a little bit about his life, but also his role in the church. And I think we should maybe talk a little bit about how the riot started centered around David George specifically. And uh, feel free to correct me if I'm inaccurate. Did it start around David George? It did. It did. David George should have a giant memorial of himself in downtown Shelburne. Like the fact that's pure and simple racism that David George has essentially been forgotten in history. Uh And so David George was the founder or co-founder of the first Baptist church. So it'd be Silver Bluff Baptist church in South Carolina uh, he went on to start the first Baptist church in Sierra Leone. And in the meantime, he started the first Baptist church in British North America or Canada. So he was born in Virginia. His master was incredibly cruel, essentially beat his, his mother to death in front of him when he was, was oh. a kid. David George, I think after like a, a beating by him, he fled. So he fled right. from Virginia and, and then ends up being captured by uh, First Nation Creek, I think Creek Indians, or First Nation in South Carolina or Georgia. And then, so he's held there for a while. And then his old master run sort of catches up with him. And eventually he ends up in, in Silver Bluff and he's, uh, he's been re-enslaved, but on the Gulfin plantation. So he had, he's, you know, he's pretty, he's a pretty wild guy, but then he has this religious awakening. And so he, he starts with this guy named George Leal and they start a church together. Then when the war breaks out, a lot of them flee from the interior out to Savannah. They're in and around Augusta and they flee to Savannah where they serve the British. And David George has a, a diary, and I encourage anybody to read it. It's not very long, and you can see what this guy's, what he did in his life. So so he's serving the British in Savannah, and then when the British evacuate, he evacuates with them, ends up in Nova Scotia. So he ends up in Shelburne, and he ends up with a lot, a waterfront lot. And I don't think it's very big, but he ends up, 
he has a his house and he has a he builds a church and he's baptizing people in the river down below his house and he's he's traveling around baptizing people and so one thing to point out here so it makes sense is that it's we're at a time when the church is really in a state of flux it's in the the great awakening and so people are really like not quite sure how their souls are going to be saved uh-huh. And so, I mean, we all know the place that religion has in, in black society. That's right. Yep. Yep. So he's there to offer, and, and it's a very African, so Methodism and and the Baptist religion rely heavily on African spiritual concepts. So the immersion in Baptist beliefs, that is also, it symbolizes an African, some African religions is it submersion water is Mark's rebirth. So it makes sense that he's a proponent of baptism. And so he's born again, Christian sort of approach to religion, but that doesn't sit very well with other Christian denominations, especially the Congregationalists and the Calvinists. And so the Shelburne race riot is always sort of painted as, or I even said it myself, it's painted as a race riot, but it's, just as much a religious riot as well. And that's where, when you look at David George's place in that, he's going around and he's baptizing people and preaching. And and when the trouble starts in Shelburne, it's because he's baptizing this family from Jones Harbor. It's the Holmes family. And so the Holmes that live in Shelburne go down to this baptism and prevent him from baptizing these people. Now, some historians always go to, oh, well, they didn't want him, a black man, baptizing these two white people. When in reality, there was already this huge rift in the church in Nova Scotia, and it's just as likely that they just didn't want them to become Baptists, because Baptists were being persecuted in the 13 colonies and in Nova Scotia. Okay. We see religious uh, riots all the time. I think even still today. Yeah. Globally, like, it's still yeah, a thing. And it very much was that way, right? I mean, they were describing each other as people who believed other things to be agents of the devil, right? So, you know, it's not just a mild dislike of David George's religion. They probably thought this man is spreading evil and we're going to suffer because of these these bad beliefs that some of us have. Right. And that sort of starts then. So the mob basically start that time he sort of gets away with it, but that really initiates the animosity mm. towards David George and anyone associated with David George in Shelburne. And so for like a, for a month or so, maybe a couple months, they're just constantly, he himself says like he can't, he, he's under so much persecution that he can hardly get a chance to preach. Right. And then the mob comes and tears down his house and, and he has squatters on his land, tears those down, chases them all out of town to Birchtown. He comes back and then they come back and chase him. And that's really like the big part of the riot is then. And they, you know, they basically say, if you stick around here, we're going to, we're going to kill you. So off he goes back to Birchtown again. They wouldn't go into Birchtown. Like I thought there was like a proponent that went into Birchtown to, you know, cause havoc. I don't tend to agree with that. I I think because later on, even in John Clarkson's mission 
to America, he talks about blacks who flee to Birchtown to get away from white people. Right. So, and these, these blacks, some of them would have been heavily armed and, and guerrilla fighters. So you've got yeah. a bunch of cobblers and cake bakers running. Like, <laughs> it just doesn't make a lot of sense. No. Yeah, it's something about black people with like heavily armed, right? It's uh, <laughs> inf- yeah, and it inflicts a lot of uh, painful emotions for uh, a certain group of people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I I don't see a lot of evidence of Birchtown being raised to the ground, and it right. continues to be a self-contained community until the early 1790s. It's po- large population, and in fact, it's the white population that really implodes we could talk for probably another hour which is crazy honestly, i think we need to bring graham back i think so Glad <laughs> so we know that there was a riot but then there was an eight-year period before the departure to sierra leone so what happened in those eight years it's it was a constant struggle so the basically the military rations run out I think after two years. And so at that time, most of the affluent whites, if they hadn't left already, they take off, right? There's no more food. Right. Uh, and so they leave the infrastructure that's in place to support wealthy white people basically evaporates. So there really aren't a lot of white patrons for the blacks either. Like the economy just tanks. The population <laughs> sense, yeah. goes down to like a few hundred people. And so, so then they're just left to fend for themselves. They're left to fend for themselves. They're impoverished. The The climate at that time is horrendous and there's famine mm-hmm. and, um, and there's still religious unrest that continues on. And this whole question of slavery just continues to drag on until, until um, there is the trial of Mary Postal. And that's in, I'm going to say 1791 where, and it all ties together because she went through um, St. Augustine, Florida, and probably she indentured herself or, or got herself in a situation that she ended up in Nova Scotia, probably owed somebody money to get her there, but then she's treated as a slave and her bond person is trying to, to basically sell her and her children off and she challenges Mary Postal challenges this. Yeah, they're trying to sell, I think, one of her kids for a bag of potatoes. Mary Postal loses her court challenge. And that seems to trigger this Thomas Peters on the who's another uh right. that's he was the one of the head black pioneers. During all of this stuff, he's gone to to London to petition Parliament to actually get land because they were promised their land and were never awarded. And in fact, they settled a place and gotten kicked off of there by the Anglican church, no less. So Thomas Peters shows up and this court verdict has just been handed down. And it's like, we're still slaves in this country. We're still treated no better than slaves. So this option to go to Sierra Leone is, is present. And so that sort of really leads, it's just been one catastrophe after another. And so that's what leads to this mass migration from Nova Scotia. So, and what what I've been, we've been talking about is like the declining population 
and uh, a lot of these historical communities as well. So I uh, just did a look, quick some research on that. And there is, you know, we, we know now that there's roughly 225 people of like African descent in Birchtown. Just wondering about your thoughts on that in terms of the, you know, the declining population and intermigration. So, yeah, if we divorce ourselves again from the victim narrative, people in Birchtown weren't like, oh, my, what are we going to do? Like, yeah. <laughs> it's it's like, OK, well, we've got it, you know, taking as an assessment of skills and what the laws are and what opportunities there are and and looking at where the best options are. And mm-hmm. so this is, is what ties all of us here together, really, because Birchtown is this place that exists as a black center for a very brief period of time and then people leave so what is it 1200 leave to go to sierra leone but other communities also blacks who have skills that are in demand go to these places so if the rich white people go somewhere to saint john Uh, you follow right 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 um so what happens is you have like communities surrounding Birchtown that end up having in space and time enclaves of blacks, black sailors, black shipbuilders, service workers or whatever. So Birchtown, so you can see out in, in Barrington right. area, there was a large black community there. And then that spreads down the coast to Yarmouth, which was a, a large center for shipping. Yeah. Uh, Lockport, which is a fishing center, Jordan, right. which is a boat building center, Liverpool, Port Mattoon, um, Lockport, Lockport. Lo- yeah. yeah. Lockport is just up the coast from Shelburne. That's right. Yeah. So that's where part of my family comes from is East Green Harbor, just outside of Lockport. Right. Where Merle Bruce, my tap dancing grandfather, that's where he came from. And so these communities they're gone now. Uh-huh. Right. Um, but you'll see, like, you'll look at old photographs and of a place and like, Oh, there's a black person there. Why is that now back uh-huh. in the old days? It'd be like, I, I don't understand why that's why they're there. And probably for most people, when they think of black people, they think of like Preston or, yes. or Birch central. Yeah, yeah. Very central. Yeah. Urban central. centers, but it, uh-huh. there are plenty of communities in the Valley as well. They're, they're all over the place. And they all have these interconnected people of prominence in them that that tie us all together. Thanks for listening to the Loyalist Connections podcast. This episode was produced by your hosts, myself, Luis Gabriel Downey. And Sean Smith, with support from Podstarter. Also, we want to give a special shout out to Grace McNutt, who patiently adored our stressful antics and helped us find our voices through this journey. Special thanks for the support from Community Partners, the Black Cultural Center, and the Black Loyalist Heritage Center and Society. Please visit these historical museums for more information on the community and so much more. We can't forget to thank our special guests for their time and sharing their community connections and shedding light on this vital element of our history of the initial settlers. Your lived experiences and contributions on the history of Birchtown and Shelburne is helping build a better picture of what life is like for our ancestors and fill gaps in our understanding of the lasting legacy of African Nova Scotians and more broadly, Canadian history. 
Graham Nickerson's contributions to our history will forever be documented for generations to come as we continue on our journey of building a digital heritage repository of our collective history. Until the next episode, listen, like, follow, and share Loyalist Connection podcast and all your favorite platforms. And make sure to follow us on Instagram at Loyalist Connections Podcast. And for exclusive content, including access to unedited episodes, join the Loyalist Connections community on Patreon.com. Until the next episode, stay connected.